Good morning, my brothers and sisters. I know that it's a cold day outside, but I hope uh, you feel very warm in here, not only temperature-wise, but also, more importantly, in, in uh, what we've received uh, from the Lord, that is His grace and His mercy and His kindness. And uh, we are energized in light of what he's done for us. So, uh, again, greetings to you. Grateful to be together in uh, these times. And greetings to everyone who's watching at home. We've, we very much miss you. I completely understand uh, from the beginning. We've tried to uh, encourage those to adopt the measures that is uh, best for their loved ones. Uh, that being said, we do very much miss those who've uh, not been here physically in a while. But greetings to you this morning. And uh, thankful again for the, the Lord's Day. And today is Communion Sunday. Uh, so I, we hopefully you grabbed uh, communion on the way in. And we'll be celebrating that later today as we prepare our hearts. So by way of announcements, uh, firstly, we have a mom's play date. So this is moms of preschoolers. You know that can be a, a lonely, intimidating time of life. So Tuesday, 10 o'clock, you have the d dates kind of for the, the uh, spring term there. Uh, but Tuesday at 10 a.m., moms of preschoolers here at the church, we'd love to have you. Uh, any questions can go to Don Garrett. I uh, hope that's an enriching time. Secondly, prayer requests. That we want to be a church that's prayerful. It's everywhere. It can be so often neglected. And so we've tried to start monthly prayer gatherings led by the elders. But we as a staff, we meet every Monday morning. And we have a lot of uh, things to be prayerful about in our church. We have, you know, Ill illnesses and aging parents and job loss and all kinds of circumstances. So we want to pray through that with you. And no problem if it's uh, confidential. We keep that to ourselves. Or alternatively, we can pray for it corporately you can make that known but know that we'd love to be praying more with you and for you and what you're you're going through thirdly uh 
Fieldstone Counseling. This is a, a partnership that we have with a Christian counseling organization that's uh, biblically based. And, you know, I think we're just beginning to see the kind of psychological, um, the psychological um, consequences of what we've been through just weighing on people's minds. So maybe you're someone who said, you know, we really need to give this attention. I'd like to talk through this with someone who's an expert, but they've just been wonderful partners. And please, you can email Pastor Ian, uh, who's our liaison with them, or, or really anyone in the church office. But we'd love to connect you. Maybe you have a child who's going through a tough time. Uh, that would be a good way to go. Before the next slide, I hope you all know me well enough. I, I never try to uh, shock or do, you know, I guess clickbaiting or anything like that. That is not my style, but I'll say this. Next week, we'll be talking about some themes that I would say um, anyone under the age of about 12, uh, it'd be good for them. I know there's Sunday school this hour, but we're going to be talking about the computer and how we use the computer in a way that's rather uh, deliberate. So I think next week, we'll just say those 12 and older for some of the stuff we're going to talk about. Is that fair? If you want to know more directly about it, you can just email me or the Friday email will have more details, but uh, just a need to talk about those issues next week. Fourthly, giving statements. We thank you for your continued generosity, what, what God is, is doing here. And you should have gotten an electronic um, uh, a way of accessing your giving statements. I'm very thankful to Sue and to Angel and to Kathy who, you know, going from a, a paper method, all electronic, say these uh, ladies have been so very flexible. And we'd love to help you get that uh, for tax purposes, but thank you for your continued generosity as the, the gospel goes forth, but those giving statements are now available. I wonderfully say I, I love announcing babies. This is why we, do, we, don't, we, never, we don't announce babies when I'm not here, because I like to announce the babies. Uh, so this is Elsie uh, June Hooper, uh, who was born a short time ago. Her parents are Jonathan and Lauren, her older sister, Clara May. Uh, but we celebrate her life and are thankful for the Hooper family. Many of you will probably know Dave and Christy, who are the grandparents. Uh, but we're very thankful for Elsie and our prayers for the Hooper family. And also, I'll introduce you there to Neam David Carmen. So there's Neam, uh, who's born to Curtis and Lauren Carmen. His older brother, Ellis, is uh, adjusting, I'm told. Uh, know about that. Uh, but uh, Neam David, thankful for his little life in these families. And even again, you say it's a time where there are a lot of people experiencing loss and frustration. You say, we remember God is still the giver of good gifts and the great miracle of life is always to be celebrated, which we do. So as we prepare, uh, again, a communion Sunday to pay attention to what God has done in Jesus, the most important thing in all reality, uh, Pastor Ian will call us to worship, and I hope, again, we posture ourselves to, to bring glory to God. Well, church, good morning. Let's uh, begin our time standing together, remembering the truths of our faith, and let's uh, begin our time communing with the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that in your faithfulness you have gathered us here this morning to once again remember your name and to praise your name and to reflect upon your name. We thank you for the truth that you have left us in Christ Jesus, who is the word of God, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the exact representation of your nature. We thank you that he has founded and delivered your truth and we pray that this morning we would reflect deeply, not in a way that's merely intellectual, not rotely or from ritual, but Father, with great gratitude in our hearts. 
Help us to rehearse these truths this morning in our hearts that you have delivered, that Christ died once for sinners, and that he has been exalted into the heavens where he now sits and reigns at your right hand over all, including us, Lord. We thank you and we praise you. In Christ's name, amen. Philippians chapter 2, which is the mysterious and wondrous passage of talking of Christ's divinity and his humanity. And this is a truth that the church has labored over and wrestled, and some uh, suffered for, this, for professing it, and this, this Athanasius, 
an apostolic father who, at the risk of his own well-being and even his life, he writes these truths. How should we understand? The question is, how should we understand Christ as God and Christ as man? And what is his position in the Godhead? So we're beneficiaries of the early church fathers who wrestled through these at great cost to themselves. And so we have the privilege. Let's recite these truths together, looking solely upon God the Son this morning. We believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and human equally. He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time. And he is human from the essence of his mother, born in time. Completely God, completely human, with a rational soul and human flesh, equal to the Father as regards divinity, less than the Father as regards humanity. Although he is God and human, yet Christ is not two, but one. He is one, however, not by his divinity being turned into flesh, but by God's taking humanity to himself. He is one, certainly not by the blending of his essence, but by the unity of his person. For just as one human is both rational soul and flesh, so too the one Christ is both God and human. He suffered for our salvation. He descended to hell. He arose from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He is seated at the Father's right hand. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. At his coming, all people will arise bodily and give an accounting of their own deeds. Those who have done good will enter eternal life, and those who have done evil will enter eternal fire. And so, beloved, the wonder we have is we're going to sing Galatians 2.20 that this Christ we have been crucified with, our, our sin, our shame has been laid upon him. He became that sin so that we might live. And just the marvel of this truth. And so let's proclaim it together.
with thanksgiving in our heart and we enter your courts with praise and Lord this morning we are very thankful there's so much to be thankful for Lord we thank you for those who have been in our lives who have shown us what it means to follow you who have told us about you Lord we thank you for family members and we thank you for friends Lord we thank you for the opportunity to be together now and to sing praises to hear your word. Lord, we're very grateful. Lord, we thank you that uh, we have an opportunity to love and serve you, to show your love to others. Lord, we thank you that you are drawing us to yourself, that you are completing the work that you began in us. Lord, we pray for those today that are sick in our church. We commit them to you. We pray for them. We pray for those who are dealing with issues with jobs, for those who are grieving. We ask that you would draw them up close to them, Lord. May they sense your presence today. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us. Lord, there are things that we think and say and do. There's things that... Um, Lord, even in our patterns of thinking that we think that just isn't of you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be sensitive to that, that we would sense um, when we are sinning, Lord, when we are doing things that are contrary to what you would desire and what you do and what you think. Lord, you tell us that you can do immeasurably more than we dare to ask or imagine. And I pray right now, Lord, if there are things in our lives, maybe relationships in our families that you would do immeasurably more situations at work Lord maybe people that um, we're struggling with 
we ask that you would do immeasurably more. Lord, the impact that we would love to see this church have, both local and abroad, that you would do immeasurably more than all we can imagine. Lord, we thank you that we have an opportunity to give and pray that it would be, uh, you would use us, that we would be cheerful givers, that we would give not just of our money, but our time and talents as well and treasure. We commit that to you. Pray that you would use it to your glory. And Lord, um, I just ask that you would help us to be uh, a people that are reaching out and showing the love of Christ to all around us. In your son's name, amen. Today we are going to continue in the book of Philippians, and we are going to read Philippians 1, 27 to Philippians 2, 11. Um, I'm going to be reading out of the ESV translation. As a way to honor God's word, if you are able, would you stand with us this morning? Thank you. <clears throat> Starting with Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you uh, that for the sake of Christ, you should not believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full accordance in one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thanks be to God. I was with a brother earlier this week, and we were reflecting on a story, probably apocryphal, but could be true, in that uh, church called the new pastor, and the new pastor uh, started to make changes, and one of the changes was to move the piano from this side of the platform to that side of the platform. Uh, but when he announced this change, that half the church was outraged, uh, that it split the church, and they threw out the pastor. Uh, so then they called the new guy, and about three years later, the 
pastor comes back and he says, he notices that the piano is in fact on the other side of the platform. He asked the new guy, he said, how did you get that piano over to the other side? I mean, that's what cost me my job. And he said, well, well, that was easy. We just moved it one inch each week and it made its way over there. So you say that story I think is um, one that shows us firstly that churches can move slowly and incrementally uh, like a horse easily spooked. Uh, but the sad part of that is that we know that churches often can divide over very silly things that those of us called to reflect who Christ is, right? This great magisterial call in a lot of ways can be so incredibly petty. And today what we're to see in our letter, Philippians, as we've been working through this, that Paul is addressing them about the importance of unity. And what's striking about this is you say, of all the New Testament churches, right? I know you know your Bibles well, and you're reading through the New Testament. You say, well, you know, there's one written to the church in Corinth, and you're like, this is a mess. I mean, they're suing each other. There's sexual immorality. There's idolatry. I mean, tons of problems in Corinth. You read Galatians. You're like, oh, my goodness. You know, what's going on in Galatia? There's the Judaizers and the church. In Philippi, we, we don't really have that. That Philippi, we could say, is, is the healthiest of the New Testament churches, that they've been generous, that they've been a great encouragement to Paul, uh, that there doesn't seem to be any of the doctrinal disputes that plague the other churches, that they're a healthy church, and yet disunity still lurks. The division is there. Paul's saying, complete my joy, right? Verse 2, complete my joy of being of the same mind, of the same love, in full accord with one mind. You flip over a few pages, chapter 4 and verse 2, there's two sisters in Christ, right? Those two ladies there who are clearly Christians, and yet Paul's saying that there's some kind of dispute between them, and they, they really need to get along. You see, even in healthy churches, that division and disunity still lurk. That in fact, in any group of people, you know, any time you're trying to assemble folks and move towards a common goal, that faction is lurking uh, right there behind it. And so you can think of something like Madison in Federalist Paper Number 10, right? That famous document of our founding. You know, he's very aware of the possibility of division and faction and the problems that that can cause. And what we're to see today, the main point right here, is that Paul understands that faction in the church, division, is going to be staved off and kept at bay as each member of the church models the self-abasement of Christ. That as we not only model, but as we abide in Jesus and recognize his example and what he's done for us, that that's going to preserve the unity of the, Christ, of the church as we go forward advancing our calling, that is to bring glory to God and what he's done in Jesus. Now, what's at stake here? Why this is such a tricky question, again, throughout world history, is that I think in each heart, each human heart, you, you feel a tension between individualism and communalism. That at, at one sense, we can make a very good argument to say life is very individualistic. That say, I have my own proclivities and experiences, and I've been wounded in ways that nobody else has, that I've been given gifts that, that uh, God has given me, and he's given other people gifts that I don't have, that you could say that life, and what, say it's very, nobody understands me the way that I do. A counselor years ago told me, you know, rather right there for all of us to see, but in light, he said, the same people will not be at your birth and your death in all likelihood. You say, doesn't that tell you the, the end, the beginning and the end of life? Say, it's very, in some ways, very individualistic. You know, faith, we all know, you don't get on in on your, your parents' coattails, right? You say, well, I'm a Christian because my parents were. It doesn't work. We talk about being born again and regenerated. Say, these are very individualistic things. 
that all of us know what it means to be a, a self and uh, to have our private thoughts that no one else fully understands that there's an individual in each one of us. And yet, we long for community. Say, if I'm isolated, something we've learned a lot about the last 10 months or so, right? Say, it doesn't go well. Say, I need other people that I long to be loved. I long to be in a group. I, I long to be vulnerable. I, I long to be really me. And, and, and that side of us, I think, too. Say, we want to be a part of a family. That all of us would say, what's the balance here between being an individual and being a part of a family, a part of a community? And we tend, as we do with almost everything, go to extremes, that isn't it striking the kind of, I will call it a, a radical individualism that is uh, in many pockets of our culture really uh, taking hold. And what I'm getting at here is the kind of way that if somebody says something to me that I'm, I, I become a victim, that I'm entitled to a kind of very safe and independent space, that I'm able to declare things I, even over my own uh, body and my own biology. I mean, this radical libertarian free will that's, that's unrestrained from, from anything else. I first moved to England, uh, didn't take long for the preacher to say, well, you know the old British vice, the old British vice of class snobbery. And it got me thinking, say, what's the old American vice? You see, I think the old American vice is a kind of unrestrained self-sufficiency that sees itself, right? It takes the very good idea of what we mean by individual responsibility, which I think is a very good thing, overdone to such a point where nobody can tell me what to do, and in no ways do I want to belong and sacrifice for the good of others. You say, I think that is, in a sense, the old American vice in unfettered self-sufficiency. So we got the individual track, but what about those who then go to the other side? You say, we understand the unrestrained libertarianism, but what about the collectivist? Say, this experiment's been tried, right, in world history. Let's try to make a perfectly egalitarian society. Everybody the same, right? We'll just lump everybody together, right? We call communism or collectivism. And what did we discover there? Say, well, it blunts human creativity. That said it blunts the individual gifting and allowing everyone to play to their strengths and be their own person, which, of course, is deep down in all of our hearts. In other words, a kind of collectivist calling dehumanizes us. So what is it that we're after? Say, we're after a healthy understanding of what it means to be individuals made in the image of God, but a part of a family that really loves. And that's what Paul's on here. He said, you Philippians, you're doing a good job. You've been a great encouragement. You've been generous, but be careful because disunity and faction is always lurking. I know that you're all individuals. How do we get the family right? One other word by way of preface comments. I know this, some of you just be like, well, isn't this obvious? But it's really important because I hear preachers and this distinction I think is lost on a lot of us. This, of course, what we read, this famous passage is written to Christians that Paul thinks all of these people, right, at some point have surrenders their lives to Jesus. You remember the introduction of the letter, right? Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. He's saying those who have been set apart in him, those who've been called to the distinct purpose of representing him. And how about in the passage we read, 2-1, right? If there's any encouragement in Christ for those who are in the Spirit, that he's presuming that the recipients of this instruction are those who've surrendered to Jesus. You see what a difference that makes is that I'd like to think as 
a church family. And of course, I know there are non-Christians here. Every week we have non-Christians. That, that's wonderful. I'm glad you're thinking deeply about what I would consider the most important thing in the whole universe, the Lord Jesus. So I'm not saying that, but, but the instruction here, so whether or not, say, this wonderful line of, you know, looking to others' interests above your own, say so that might be very good advice uh, when you're dealing with non-Christians. You say that's a different discussion for a different day. What Paul's on about here, he says, those of you in the church that the way you're to operate, I'm presuming that you've all recognized your weakness and your sinfulness and that you've surrendered to Christ, agreeing with God about your sin, and you've said, Jesus is my only hope that he's done what I could never do on my own and that I've been bought back as a recipient of his grace. That's the end. In light of that, now how do we do the church well? How do we prevent from dividing? So it is, in fact, about Christ. We're about his Business. So you say that's our shared value. Say a lot of discussion now that many people, I think rightfully so, if you read you know, any kind of political philosophy, they're really worried about the lack of shared values across uh, America. You say that does get very hard indeed, right? If a lot of people don't want the same thing. You say, but may it not be in the church? I know we have a lot of different opinions, don't we? You say we have different opinions about mass. We have different opinions about vaccines. We have different opinions about where to educate our children and how to do that, and on and on the list goes. You say, that's good. It's good to talk about those things. I have to talk about those things. However, we have a, a very serious shared value, a non-negotiable shared value, the business about which we're about. That is that the name of Jesus goes forth to the glory of God, right? That we're partakers of the grace. We're partakers of the advance of the gospel. We're partakers of what it means to suffer on account of Christ in our, you know, whatever that means to be, uh, say, uh, bound together by the stigma of being uh, Christ followers. Whatever it is, we have a very clear shared idea about what we're about, about Jesus. So simple outline then today, uh, verses, uh, chapter two, verses one to four. I'll focus uh, on, I think, the threat to unity. And then secondly, verses 6 to 11 on the, uh, the solution to our unity, namely who Jesus is, with verse 5 in the middle being kind of the linchpin, uh, the transition between uh, what we're, we ought to do and how we're to do it. So point number one that Paul would have us think about is that uh, we're born with a selfishness uh, that damages our relationships, you see, I think he puts his finger on it there in verse 3. You say, what's, uh, you know, what's the threat to being of the same mind? Well, it's selfish ambition or deceit. Maybe your version says something like selfish ambition or a vain glory or selfish ambition and boasting. You say, now that's interesting, isn't it? I get in conversations all the time. You say, Bible, old dusty book. Didn't you read Gentleman's Quarterly? Gentleman's Quarterly says you don't need the Bible anymore in 2018. It's old news. Get rid of it. It's an old, defunct book from antiquity. And yet, so you take off the top business leadership book, top, my family's a mess. You know what you're going to read in there? Say, biggest threat to harmony and happiness in your business and in your home is pride and an assertiveness at the expense of others. Say, it's a timeless truth that here I am trying to be in a church family, What's the threat? Well, when I become more concerned with advancing my own agenda than I do about building the other people up. So it's a timeless truth, selfish ambition. You see what happens that when I'm about my business, which by the way, we are, I will say that, that we're a great Christian distinctive. You need to think about this if you're not a Christian. Say this is a great divide between Christian moral discourse and non-Christian moral discourse. That's whether we come into the world looking out for others or whether we come into the world looking out for ourselves. 
say humanism teaches, well, you come into the world a pretty good person, and, and uh, you know, if you just get the right programs in place, that you're going to be a really swell guy, and that you're going to always do the right thing, and, and look after other people, and be generous and kind, and so forth. Say, Christian moral reasoning is the exact opposite. It says, I come into the world with a clenched fist, and it says, I'm going to look out for myself, and that actually each day that I'm going to do what I want to be happy and whether somebody gets in, in the way, I mean, even maybe I'll treat them to be a nice guy, but I'll be a nice guy to them so that I can be more popular and advance in my company, that kind of thing to say, Christian moral discourse said we come into the world saying I'm not going to be accountable to God. I don't want to be accountable to him. I certainly don't uh, want to uh, give of myself to other people, but rather I, I think that the purpose of my life is for me to get ahead. That's how we come into the world. And Paul says that always lurks even when you're a Christian that we're tempted by the world, the flesh, and the devil to do our own thing, to boast in ourselves. Look at what I've done. Aren't I a great guy? Look at how I've made it. Look at all my stuff. He says, well, that kind of attitude in a family, in the church, in the business, is going to create an unhealthy environment, isn't it? Because what happens, what I think Paul knew, is that if I start to think only about my own interests, then I'm going to see all of you as a means to an end that I, I'm going to be tempted to use you, even, you know, deep down, and say, well, I'm going to be, again, a nice guy, help you get ahead, but that, that always with an eye of myself getting ahead, you say, that's the deep, right? So if, I, if the primary goal of my life is for me to get ahead and accumulate more stuff and make a name for myself, then I think it goes to say that all the other people in my life and in my family are a means for me to get to that end. Or maybe you could say, worse yet, a, a problems to be solved, or maybe worse yet, they're opponents that I need to defeat, to outcompete. Paul says, not so for you, Christ follower. Say, there's no place for that in the church, even though it lurks, it comes in, right? We always have an eye to ourselves, but rather what we need, alternatively, verse 3, somehow, in some way, we need a humility where we count others more important than ourselves and where I can look out for them more than I look out for myself. That's what's needed, a humility. You know what's fascinating about humility? You pick up any commentary on this part of the Bible, good commentator's going to hit it right on. I said, in other Greco-Roman literature, so let's say all the texts floating around from, uh, you know, uh, from, from Greco-Roman world all through the time that the Bible's written, it's very clear, humility, humility is not a virtue. That the Greeks and the Romans said, no, it's, it's weakness, that you never tried to be humble. It was a, it was a kind of a cringing obsequiousness, a, 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 you know, just, just not a term that, that anybody wanted to ever be. Uh, humility is not a virtue in the ancient world. In the Bible, all the way through, right, Judeo-Christian uh, world, it is. And I think we want to see how we understand it. Again, not as a kind of self-loathing. You know, I'm not, I'm not very good at that or what a terrible person I am. That's not what it is, but I like the way one commentator puts it. This is a Marcus Bachmuel's excellent commentary on Philippians. I couldn't improve upon it. I know long quotes are hard sometimes in the oral uh, exchange, but here we go. The biblical view of humility is precisely not feigned or groveling, nor a sanctimonious or pathetic lack of self-esteem, but rather a mark of moral strength and integrity. It involves an unadorned acknowledgement of one's own creaturely inadequacies and entrusting one's fortune to God rather to one's own abilities or resources. You see, I think that's it that it's not this kind of faking or feigning or self-deprecation. Rather, what it is is humility is an honest recognition of who I am as a creature of God. 
that I'm a fallen creature of God, that I'm weak and sinful, and I need help from the outside, and I need help from the other people in my life. See, that's what humility is. So Paul set up two ways, right? We can live with selfish ambition, that I make a name for myself, everybody else becomes a means to my end that I'm gonna kind of plow through and say maybe I can still be a nice guy, but the primary objective in my life is so that I can boast at my own accomplishments or I can say, no, there's actually something else at play. That is I'm a dependent and weak and sinful creature upon God who needs help from him primarily and actually help from my church family. That's what he's calling for. And you know what is great about this, this definition of humility? is that we can grow in it. I always laugh when pastor told me that every year he'd get a pastoral evaluation and he'd have to self-evaluate, you know, and he had the different attributes and he'd get down to humility. How are you doing in humility, one to 10? He says, how am I to answer that? You know, I'm doing great in humility. It self-contradicts. So, but I think the, the, what the evaluation was trying to get at is maybe this biblical view of humility, right? That um, do I have an increased awareness of just how much help I need? God, I've, I've, I've needed your grace and your mercy and your kindness even this week, that I need you. I can't do it on my own. That boy, if there's anybody that doesn't have reason to boast, it's me, that kind of thing. And boy, I'm really thankful for my brothers and sisters in the Lord who've picked me up where I'm weak, who I can see that they've been gifted in ways that I haven't. Help me to appreciate that more, that kind of thing. You say, Paul's saying we need to grow in that kind of posture that we don't want to be those who are selfishly ambitious, conceited, prideful. And though that always lurks right back in Judges, each one does what's right in their own eyes, that kind of thing, always lurking in our heart, may it not be, but rather let's grow in humility. Okay, so that's the threat. The threat to our community is our own selfish ambition. What's the solution? Well, of course, it's not only the example of Christ, as I have it in the notes. You know, I submit the notes on Friday, and then I think about it, and I say, well, I wish, but it used a different word or phrased it differently. Not just the external example. Instead, there's Jesus, we follow him. But I think verse 5, that linking verse between the problem and the solution, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. See, it goes a bit a step further, that, that it's always for the, the Christian, right, that we're... Um, we're in Christ by means of his spirit, that when we surrender to Jesus, we receive his spirit, that we belong to him. Uh, the example always comes back to me. Think of a fish in the water, right? You say that's his natural environment. That's where, he, uh, where that fish most thrives. So it ought to be for the Christian to say, yeah, I can you know, do my own thing and sin, but it, it's uh, not comfortable for me that I need to be back with him. And that's what Paul would say. Not only is Jesus a good example for you, but you've surrendered to him. You're in him and that you have his strength to live in this way. So Christ is our example of selflessness. Now we have uh, our task. Task, uh, really set before us now with verses 6 to 11, and I'll tell you why. Of all the little passages, you know, you could say subsections of the New Testament, you could make a very good argument that the most ink, most ink has been spilt over Philippians 2, 6 to 11 especially in the last 120 years, because some of your versions, maybe you have a version of the Bible where verses 6 to 11 of chapter 2 are broken up almost as if it's a poem. So some have said, well, is this a pre-Pauline hymn? Uh, is there a rhythm to it in the original Greek? Uh, what about all the rich, the out? So lots and lots and lots of text produced. And uh, you'll see that in these short verses, you have all the great truths of who Jesus is for us. 
So we read the Athanasian Creed, as Ian says, so that church takes a long time to get there, but the Athanasian Creed is an amplification of Philippians chapter 2, 6 to 11. So notice what you'll have here. You've got a pre-existent Jesus, right? That it breaks in in verse 6 with the who, who uh, before he became a person, right? Clearly, uh, this passage understands Jesus to have existed prior to his becoming a person. So we call that pre-existence, right? That Jesus is in fact God, that he existed outside of time, that, uh, that, that he was there before time began, uh, that he's, he's God before the incarnation. So we have a pre-existent Jesus. We also have him being equal with God, right? We'd say in the very form of God, verse 6, he didn't count his equality with God a thing to be grasped. So you have a fully divine Jesus. You have the incarnation, that he was born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. So absolutely clear, this Jesus became a full person at the incarnation, that he died, not only did he die, but he died on a Roman cross, that institution of death. Clearly he's raised because God has exalted him and that he's ascended because he's with God and he's the reigning king forever. So do you see what this little passage does? Pre-existence, full divinity, incarnation, full humanity, death on the cross, resurrection, and ascension. <laughs> say, now you are into theology. You say, well, you give, what did I say, seven or eight things there. You say, this is seven or eight passages, you know, messages right here, but we're not going to do seven or eight messages. We do one, and this is why. Because you say, what is this rich passage doing here in Philippians 2? Why did he decide to do this here? Because he's talking about the unity and the purpose of the church. He puts this forth as the example of how we're to go forward. And the crucial thing, I think, is to think in terms of a mindset. Notice verse two, complete my joy of being of the same mind. Then again, having the same love, being in full accord in one mind. Verse five, have this mind for yourselves. That he's talking about the disposition or the attitude, the mindset of the Christian. That yeah, we really interesting theology. I'd love to talk about those things. I'd spend the rest of my week thinking about those things. I'd be very happy. Uh, but this is about a mindset of the church. You could amplify it, say 2 Corinthians 8, 9, right? That though Jesus was rich, he became poor. That's Paul's point. That the lofty God of the universe humbled himself to come among us to serve and to die for us. You see, just have time to hit on a couple of things, but this the first time you read it, it may be an unusual thing to, to read. Who, though he was in the very form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, or maybe in other versions, a thing to be clutched. Some would say, well, you know, because Jesus was already God, he didn't need to strive for divinity. Is that what Paul's saying? Say, I don't think so. What he's saying here is that his status as Lord God creator he didn't use that to exercise dominion over other people. That Jesus didn't use, the second person of the Trinity did not use his status as the creator and judge of all, the, the potentate of time as the, the hymn puts it. He didn't use what was rightfully his to exploit the people, to grasp it, to clutch it, and say, look at how great I am. But rather, it's precisely uh, his coming down where we most see God. Say, so now it ties into what we're saying. So I don't use the church to exploit, to exercise dominion, any, any one of us, to exercise my own will, even if I think that it may be rightfully mine, but rather I don't do that, and I come down in order to serve. 
So I know analogies and word pictures are always inadequate when you come to rich theological truths, but here's a story that I was thinking about prompted in my mind this week, uh, the story of Bill Lear. Uh, some will know that last name, that Lear was a great inventor uh, and, of course, lent his name to the Lear Jet, uh, the first private jets back in the 60s. Now, when uh, Lear had already had a number of patents, he was a very wealthy man at the time that he tried to pioneer these private planes. And in the 60s, uh, the project did not get off to a good start, that many of the Lear Jets crashed, and uh, Lear poured a lot of his personal finances into this project, even so, just uh, really recklessly so, pouring his own uh, personal money to make the jets work. And then uh, the, the kicker is that, you know, since a lot of these planes are crashing, you know, he's looking around at his test pilots, is who's up next? Who wants to test the next one? Say, <laughs> so not many hands up. So who tests the planes but Lear himself? Lear said, I'll test the planes say, of course, ends up being a great story and a great success. But I think in that story, you have a little bit of what's happening here. Say, Lear's the head of the company. He's a wealthy man. You know, he's able to tell other people what to do. Does he use that to exploit the people, to exercise dominion? Or does he actually sacrifice to come down and make it go forward? You say, that's what Paul's going on about here. You say, this Jesus, he's God of the universe. He's creator. But he didn't use that to exploit others but rather that he came down. In verse 7, uh, verse seven, crucially, a lot of the liberal scholars, and again, when I say liberal in this setting, I don't mean politics, I mean theology. The liberal scholars will say when Jesus emptied himself, right? He didn't see his equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. That being emptied, see, what the liberal scholars will tell you is that Jesus gave up a bit of his godness, that he uh, gave over some of his divine attributes, that in fact, when he came to be a, a human, he was less God. We could say, some would say, he exchanged his divinity for his humanity. Say, I'll take the humanity, I'm giving up the divinity. Say, that is not the claim of the church. That's not what this passage is saying. It's saying that he emptied himself of the divine prerogatives of power and peace and prosperity and glory. And by the very fact of his taking on a human nature, remember in the Athanasian Creed, right? It's not that he exchanged, say, I'll, I'll substitute, the, the, get, get rid of the God and take on, the, but rather in fully God, he came down in humility and took on a full human nature. And the thrust to, for us, right, this high to low action, again, is a model for us how to behave as a church that I don't want to use the gifts that I've been given to lord it over people, to exploit them, to exercise dominance, but rather by using them to serve others is when we're most like Christ. So that's the point. And the question for all of us today, right, those of us who are Christians, is say, yeah, I quite frankly fall into selfish ambition all the time and pride and boasting and the things that I've done. And I need to always come back to what I uh, ought to be about. That is that I need to think about the community, the covenant family of God before my individual preferences and my own uh, adventures and the things that I want to do. And who it is, again, that I follow, it's the Lord Jesus who didn't use what was his to exercise dominance, but rather to come and to serve. That's our model. And you'll notice right now you're thinking, you say, well, this is, you know, a life of weakness and defeat. You say, may it not be. How does the passage end? Say, God's raised this Jesus. He's raised this Jesus to be the great judge of all the universe. That all the world, right, there's only really, whether willingly or unwillingly, they say every human being is going to bow before him and confess him to be the Lord. So that's the fact that 
what we might think is say, well, this is a really, I don't know about living my life for the sake of others and thinking others, uh, uh, you know, their opinions are, are, you know, they're to be valued more than my own. Say, such a hard way to live. It's a life of defeat. You say, may we never view it that way. Actually, Christ has won the victory. And all of those, uh, those of us who are in him, you say, we too win that victory in strength. Say, it's those who are selfishly ambitious and don't surrender to God on his terms, you say that's really the one that's going to end in a terrible defeat for them. That's the fact. So Jesus is the name above all names, the one that every name will confess. Why? Because he came for our salvation. He didn't consider his equality with God a thing to be clutched at, but came to serve us and live among us. Now again, Christians, we have a lot of work to do each and every week, right? How important it is to come back to this again and say, I'm in Jesus. You know, I'm a, I don't want to, as a fish in water, so I need to be in Jesus, constantly reflecting. This week, am I going to struggle with selfish ambition? You better believe I am. Am I going to say some, you know, boastful things about myself? Probably so. And yet, I hope there's a conviction to say, wait. I didn't think of somebody else's interests above my own there in the church family. What, whose business am I about? That kind of thing. Now, maybe you're not a Christian. Say you're not a Christian today, but maybe you say, you know, selfish ambition is a big problem in my life, and I've seen it, and I long for something different. I agree with God about the fact that I'm a sinner and that I'm weak. This idea of biblical humility is true in my life. Say, I just, I can't do it on my own. I need that word from the outside. I'd love to be a part of a church family. Say, maybe today's the day where you say, I see something in Jesus I've not seen anywhere else. And I come to him on his terms. He's the Lord. Say, maybe that's for you today. And you join a local church family and serve his purposes. Friends, may we have the selfless mind of Christ which leads to church unity and indeed joy. See, a joyful church is one that's unified upon the advance of the gospel and being recipients of grace. You say there's no greater nightmare than faction in the church with a bunch of selfishly ambitious people. Thank goodness, Lord. Thank you for helping us be a unified church. May always be aware that disunity and division is lurking because we're fallen people tempted by the world, the flesh, and the devil. Lord, help us. I'll pray and then we'll, we'll uh, take communion together in a moment. Lord, I thank you for this wonderful passage. Oh, Lord, each of us understands what it means to be an individual, our own gifting, background, all the things that only we know about ourselves, and yet we see great value in the community. Help us to lean and depend upon each other around the shared value of the advance of the name of Jesus. Say, yeah, we have different opinions on things. It's even good to, help, you know, good to talk about those things, but to come back to say, it's not about me, but... How do I best move forward with this great truth of Jesus coming down? And Lord, more than an example we read about today, help us to see we have that mind in Jesus, that you would check us this week when we're about to make a move uh, for ourselves, even if we know it's taking advantage of another person um, in the church family, or that we say something, you know, come back around and say, I really needed to apologize for that because that was a rather prideful thing to say. Help us to be those kind. For those who are in Christ, Lord, to take this charge seriously, and maybe for those who aren't a Christian to say, Lord Jesus, I, I do. I surrender to you. I, I see that you're different. Help my unbelief. So commit this time to you. May Christ be honored. Amen. So I'm going to flip back a few pages to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that in light of what we've just studied, um, we think about Jesus coming for us and his body beaten and then hung on the cross 
And as the Lord Jesus would institute the communion, he'd have the faithful think of a number of things. I always think of a number of directions. Firstly, he wants us to look inward. Should I think back even over the last, I don't know, last couple of days and think of maybe something we said to our spouse or our friend. You say, wow, I, I did not represent the Lord there well. Perhaps you posted something on social media where you're like, well, that was not a wise thing to post because I just cut down a lot of people. Perhaps we've done something or cut corners on our finances. You say, Lord Jesus, I confess before you today that I've sinned and I'm thankful that I'm washed clean in your blood. It's a time for the faithful to confess that we also look back to the cross, that we never keep it distant, but remember that he was there for us, that we're assured of that as the completed work of Jesus. So we look in our own hearts, confess our sins. We look unto Jesus where we have the assurance of pardon. We also look around at our brothers and sisters that God and his wisdom has this group of people assembled on this day in this time in this place to represent him and we want to link arms and take Ephesians 4 seriously to build each other up. And then we look out. Say we're going back out into a world where we're going to have a lot of appointments with those who don't know Jesus. How do we proclaim him? How do we live in light of this? How do we use our speech in the places that we go to honor him? So again, we confess our sins. We look back to the cross. We look to our brothers and sisters. And we look out into the world with the task that we have ahead. So if you would, you take off the top part of your cup there. As you have that in hand, taking a moment to think of Jesus' bloody body there on the cross, who took the form of a servant, came to be just like one of us, And on the night that he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus, he took the bread. And when he gave thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So we take the bread together. Now we'll have a hymn of reflection as we continue to think about the Lord Jesus. And I'll be back up. Then we'll take the cup together. Yeah. 
Jesus for bearing the wrath of God that I deserve for my sin and rebellion. That same night after he distributed the bread as his broken body, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Faithful ones, we do proclaim this truth that those in him are washed clean by his blood and bought back our only hope, the blood of Christ. We take it together. Well, church, let's respond for the, to this grace that Christ has given us. Let's stand together. Sing to him. Yes, is we to trust in Jesus just from sin and self to cease, just from Jesus simply taking life. Oh, 
mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. May we go forth in that strength. Amen.